Welcome all to another episode of A Positive Podcast. Today's episode is a little different than my usual format. I have the privilege of sharing with you all a conversation between my husband, Rabbi Nehemia Schusterman, and a psychiatrist, Dr. Craig Heacock, who also happens to be a host of a very popular podcast called Back from the Abyss, which has been named one of the top 10 psychedelic podcasts. And it's a fascinating conversation between Dr. Heacock and my husband, and they discuss a variety of topics from medications and mood disorders and the importance of sleep and exercise, as well as other questions that come up as they are speaking. I think that you will find this to be an interesting conversation. Although it may be data-heavy and a lot of information, I think everyone will gain insight and education and awareness that will be helpful for you personally and for you to share with others. So sit back, relax, and be ready to listen and grow. In addition, I want to share with you all that if you're curious to find out more about my positive psychology-based coaching, you can reach out to me at my website at apositivecoach.com, or you can email me at razel, R-A-I-Z-E-L, at jewishpeabody.com. Thanks for listening, and have a great day. Welcome to another uh, positive podcast. And today we have the uh, privilege and honor of having Dr. Craig Heacock. Dr. Craig Heacock is an adolescent and adult psychiatrist and addiction specialist in Colorado, as well as co-producer and host of the, Psychiat- the Psychiatric Storytelling Podcast, Back from the Abyss. He was a therapist in the phase three trial of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD and has particular interest in the use of ketamine and other psychedelics to treat severe mood disorders and PTSD. He's a graduate of the University of New Mexico School of Medicine and did his psychiatry training at Brown University. A friend of mine turned me on to your podcast um, this summer, and I found them, well, at times, you know, pretty intense because you do get into some really, really heavy-duty stuff. Um, and for those who want to go there, you can, um, you know, check his podcast out at Back from the Abyss. It's a fascinating podcast, but today we're going to keep the topic a, a tad more tame. But if you want to get into some really deep, deep, dark mental health um, conversations, just scroll back and listen to some of the earlier podcasts. Um, and the only other uh, preface that I'll give before I jump into the questions is, you know, one of the things that I found really, really fascinating um, in listening to your podcast is that you take a really broad, comprehensive approach, almost like if, if one could call it, you know, forensic psychiatry, where you don't just say, okay, so, you know, someone's coming in with symptoms, they feel depression, they feel anxiety, but really you'll look deeper, you know, what's, what's going on in your blood, what's going on in, you know, your hormones, what, what other contributing factors, I mean, there is all the other stuff, traumas, and, and, you know, there are biochemical components, but you explore deeper. And I think, you know, in a certain way, our society today has just been trained that there's a pill for everything. Walk in, I feel this ailment, whether it's a physical ailment or a mental ailment, and just give me the pill that will solve the problem. And we know that it doesn't always work. And there's reasons why it doesn't always work, whether the diagnosis is wrong or whether, whether you know, we're not treating the real issue. We're only trying to get at the symptoms. And, and I like your comprehensive approach at looking at the entire picture, you know, you know, kind of like, you know, that book, you know, the, the boy who was raised as a dog, you know, he, he, he is truly, I think, a forensic psychiatrist. Um, but, you know, you're like another modern day version of that concept. 
um, and uh, and I found it really interesting. So um, I want people to you know do as I hoped that I do for my own self and my family, which is you know don't just you know, follow the herd, you know, if you have a, have a situation that you're dealing with yourself, your children, your family members, whatever, um, to really look at the whole picture, not to just uh, say, okay, this is the ailment, let's treat it like everyone's doing it, but let's try to broaden our horizon and look at it from a more expansive view. So with that as a background, let's jump right into this. Um, uh, why don't we start by telling us a little about yourself, um, your background, and how you got to this uh, very popular podcast back from the abyss. Yeah. Well, this is my third career. I was a high school teacher for three years, and then I got a master's and did environmental work, and then went back to med school when I was 30 to be a psychiatrist. That was a goal. Um, it's kind of a long story, but the short of the, the podcast really came about from a my own personal pain, some of the vi vicarious trauma I've, <clears throat> I've experienced being a psychiatrist, also my love of podcasts, and also a couple of my patients who for years have been saying, I wanna share my story with the world. So the woman, Elizabeth from season one, episode one, Strawberries is that episode. She'd been saying to me for years, like, I feel like I have things of my story that could give some hope and inspiration to people. And, and when I decided to do the podcast, I called her and I said, you're episode one. And she said, yes, please, please. And so that was the first one we recorded. That's a very heavy, five chili rating episode. I don't know if you've listened to it. My kids have said, dad, you should put a little warning on that one. Um, but it is a completely engrossing um, story. And, and then episode, I think three is a guy, um, Chris, and same thing. He had been saying for years, I want to, I want to get my story out. And so it's kind of this synergy of, oh, I have people who want to share their story. I think I could help them. I love podcasts. And then also I wanted to kind of weave in some of my own stuff. Like I've had now nine suicides and two murders. Um, I've had a couple of the suicides in particular were just brutal for me. And um, one sent me spiraling down a path of addiction for a while. And, uh, and so I've weaved that into the podcast too, kind of my own journey into the abyss and out and then my patients as well and in season one most of the storytellers were my patients but now uh, largely people are approaching me which is fun i have a woman flying out from new york city next week is going to meet with me and tell her story come to my office so uh it's been even more meaningful than i would have ever hoped it's would you say that uh, that you know on some level, you're a wounded healer and wounded healers make better doctors, make better uh, caretakers. Yeah, we actually did a couple episodes on that where we looked at this question, do you, do you have to have your own darkness to be an effective therapist? And I think it helps. I think I was a, I think I was a solid doc and therapist before I had my own plunge into darkness, but I think I came out with a whole new level of humility and just compassion towards others and myself and, and um, yeah. And I think the, you know, the darkness is coming. That's one of the messages of, of back from the abyss. Like you may not have some terrible mental health plunge, but you know, life is going to throw really hard things at us, whether it's divorce or mental illness in a child or loss of a family member. And so we need to get ready for that. You know, and I think that I would argue the way we get ready for that is we pull together we connect, we, 
become as resilient as we can be. And, you know, that's another way to look at back from the abyss. I think these are stories of resilience. These are people that plunged into horrible places and were able to find that inner strength to pull out and come to the other, other side. Oh, that's fascinating. I, I love I love the idea of fortifying yourself and, and building a resilience, um, not so much a part of preparing for imminent darkness or eventual darkness, but, you know, you know, please God, we can spare that, be spared that, but it, indeed, if it does come, we're, de- we're better off if we're a little bit fortified and prepared for that. All right, so let me jump into some more of the technical stuff. Okay, so one of the things that I found really fascinating about your podcast, as I mentioned before, is that you take this whole approach, you, you know, this larger, you know, you kind of zoom out and then you, you know, explore the patient, you know, in, in their entirety, you know, they're coming in, yes, of course, with specific symptoms, let's keep it, you know, relatively mild, something that I don't know what the specific statistics are, but something that, that many many Americans, many humans are dealing with you know, depression, anxiety, and you know usually they're given some pill and uh, you know said okay you know wait you know if it's a if it's a if it's a quick pill because you did a whole podcast on medications I, I thought that was really fascinating um, you know and you know so so I, I now know a little bit you know if it's a benzo it's a fast acting you know if it's an SSRI it takes a little more time to build up but the point is is that they're given a medication and, and told wait a day wait a week wait a month but you should start feeling better um, I, I like how you. And then we find often that it doesn't work out that way. So, you know, we know that there's incorrect diagnosis, wrong med- diagnoses, wrong medications, hormonal, um, you know, imbalances, whether it's testosterone, you know, estrogen. Um, and, and often these are the causes for the mental health challenges that people are going through. So tell me more about that. How, how come you're not just doing what everyone else is doing? Um, I think that goes back to an attending I worked with at Brown my first year. Remember, he, he gave us a seminar the first year residents. He said, look, there's two ways to really think of practicing as a psychiatrist. He said, let's imagine that humans exist on a continuum of negative five to plus five. So negative five would be severe disabling psychiatric symptoms, let's call them. Zero would be no symptoms. Plus five would be optimal functioning, health, connection, love, meaning, joy. He said, so there is a whole current in psychiatry, which is very symptom focused. Um, This is med management. These are the people who are quote unquote psychopharmacologists, which I think is one of the scariest uh, things happening in psychiatry. Now that people are literally just becoming like fertilizer managers, like we're only going to deal with chemicals. But he said, so there, there are psychiatrists and schools of thought in psychiatry that the goal is to get people to zero, meaning no symptoms. He said, but that is not what you should be doing. That is not the meaningful work. That is not the beautiful work. That is not what psychiatry can be and should be. You should be aiming for plus five. So, and then another attending, I remember right around that same time, we were, I was talking to him about all the schools of psychotherapy or CBT and psychodynamic and, and um, existential. And I said, how, how do you approach a patient? And he said, you know, think of it this way. We all want an algorithm. It would be, in some ways, it'd be nice if everybody could be a like paint by number. And that's kind of what symptom focused psychiatry is. He said, but imagine every patient is a painting. And he says, imagine a course of treatment is you're meeting the patient and you're painting together. You're picking the colors and the brushes and the strokes and the medium and, and you're co-creating this thing. And he said, it is beautiful and it's complicated and it's messy but in the end, it's so much better by paint than paint by number. He said, so do you want to be a paint by number psychiatrist? I said, no, 
And so I think about those two attendings a lot, just, and this was in the first year, just thinking that um, there's the chance with each patient to really create something novel and tailored to them that fits in with who they are. Because, you know, if you met 10 of my patients with the same diagnosis and talked to each of them, you might, you'd probably be shocked how different each of them is. Like, how could each of these persons have the same, you know, access one psychiatric diagnosis? Well, it's because the psychiatric di diagnostic classifications are a mess, a total mess, which is a whole other topic. So it's not really helpful to think of people as just, oh, this person has depression or this person has anxiety. I mean, that's the start. You know, I think ideally as we get to know them, we understand why where did this come from? And excuse me, I did an episode on that, I think last year where I looked at um, the whole idea of depression as a syndrome. A lot, a lot of people think of depression as a diagnosis. It's not a diagnosis, it's a syndrome. It's a final common pathway. There's a thousand ways to that pathway. And again, I think traditional um, symptom-focused medication management is, okay, what are your symptoms? Okay, your energy's low, your libido's low, um, you're having panic. Okay. We're going to give you meds to treat those symptoms, try to bring you up to zero. But I think people who practice the way I do, which is sometimes called integrative psychiatry, although I would just call it good psychiatry. <laughs> I think, I think good psychiatry looks at the whole person and is interested in how is your marriage? How's your sexual relationship? Um, what was it like to be a little child in your home? How much do you exercise? What time do you wake up in the morning? How, you know, all the, you have to understand all that to really understand somebody's, uh, how they're presenting in your office and their, you know, symptoms, if you will. Well, you're jumping ahead to a bunch of the questions that I'm going to be asking okay. you, but it's interesting because one of the things you said actually really resonated really interestingly with me. My wife is a positive psychology practitioner and, and the whole, the whole, I mean, I'm not going to pretend to understand everything about her training because she did it, not me. Um, but I know that one of the, the fund, fundamentals of it is we're not trying to get from beneath um, even to even. We're trying to um, be beyond, like you said, plus five. We, we're trying to get to better than we are. And then occasionally we may dip down. But so, so in that way, um, um, that, that concept works, work, you know, certainly resonates and seems to make a whole lot more sense than, than a lot of the other stuff that's going on. Would you say that doctors are just diagnosing quickly because they're in a rush and there's, you know, the, the numbers of people struggling are greater than ever before. And I'm sure, the, not I'm sure, the pandemic has thrown gas on top of that fire. So people just got to get patients in, in and out, get them in, get them out, you know, just because we don't have time. Yeah, I think it's complicated. There's a few factors. One is that there's such a shortage of mental health professionals, particularly psychiatrists, that there is great pressure to see more people to practice in this sort of symptom-focused Thing. Um, and it, you know, it's much easier if you just focus on symptoms, if you just, yeah, I mean, I know psychiatrists who literally give their patients a symptom checklist in the waiting room. They bring it in. The psychiatrist looks at the symptom checklist and like, okay, we're going to up your Zoloft and then we're going to cut your clonidine and then you're going to come back in three weeks. You know, and then that's it. That's their med management, you know, 12 minute visit looking at the symptom checklist. And, you know, you, um, you can reach more people that way. It's much easier, but um, you're missing so much. But the problem is, again, there's a huge uh, shortage of psychiatrists in the US. If everybody was doing what I'm doing, the shortage would be even more disastrous. So that's the irony. It's like, 
I feel like the psychiatrists who are trying to work more holistically, a uh, whole person, you have to spend a lot more time with people. And so you can see many fewer people, which would just exacerbate the shortage. So, um, and I've talked about that on my podcast, like I'm not trying to beat up on the med management psychiatrists. I think they do fill an important role, um, but they're, it's not good care. It's, it's bare bones care. Like if you're seeing your psychiatrist for 12 and a half minutes, or, for, or if your psychiatrist calls himself or herself a psychopharmacologist, I think you should run. And imagine if you know you got a landscape architect or something that came out to your house, like, well, really, I'm just a fertilizer manager. <laughs> what? Like, I specialize in fertilizers for your soil. I mean, that, that's not what you want. You want somebody who sees the bigger picture. Um, so that's part of it. And the other thing is, it, it's, um, it's, the way the DSM, the, the diagnostic manual is set up, it's, it's very tempting to fall into just checking boxes like, okay, you have this, 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 check, 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 thus you have this. And that's, that's the way we're trained. So, but then there's this other whole school of thought of like, mm, no, that's just the surface level. So there's, there's this real schism in psych, psychiatry training of should we think about people as symptoms or should we do whole person? And it seems like obviously be whole person, but even if you think about med school, you know, we're trained as doctors first and doctors are about symptoms. So that's the other strange dynamic. Psychiatrists are MDs who do this additional training. And so we're really trained in the disease model, the medical model, the symptom model, the differential diagnosis model, but psychiatry is not like that. I, I would argue it shouldn't be like that at all. Uh, well, but, but I totally get the, uh, the, the conflict on one hand, we need more doctors than them. We don't know if, if every psychiatrist was spending that much time, we'd have an even greater shortage. So I get that. So let's, let's talk to some that maybe through this podcast, some people can be helped, you know, um, let, let's go with the most common in diagnoses, you know, anxiety, depression. I mean, you could throw in more diagnoses if you wish to talk about it. Let's talk about some of the, um, less known but pretty common contributors to these things that people don't even think about, whether it's exercise, diet, you know, hormonal imbalances. I, I know you did a whole podcast on that, but let's give mm -hmm. a, a, a nutshell version of that. Yeah. Well, maybe we should start with sleep because anybody who listens to Back from the Abyss knows that I'm a true believer in sleep. <laughs> so it turns out that sleep and mood are inextricably linked. In fact, I would order, I would, I would argue that you really can't have a meaningful mood disorder like bipolar disorder or depression unless you have sleep disturbance. Sleep and mood are not even like peanut butter and jelly. They're closer than that. I'd say they are, um, they're almost one in, in some really profound ways. So one of the things I focus most on with patients and I've talked a lot about in the podcast is you have to get your sleep uh, under control. Let me, let me define that. So more and more in modern society, you know, we're living like nocturnal mammals. We stay up very late. We have a lot of bright screen and light access. A lot of people sleep late. We are not true to our biological roots, which is if you look at all the hormonal systems of the brain, the way uh, our sleep cycle is supposed to work is it's supposed to be on a light dark cycle. So it turns out not, not shockingly, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> not shockingly that when people sleep in the dark and get up when the sun comes up, they feel immensely better. And in fact, for some, uh, for many cases of mild to moderate depression, simply committing to a healthy sleep schedule will pull people out of that. Uh, not, not necessarily as true with, with severe depression. 
So what do we see with, you know, the classic thing we see with depression is people stay up late, sleep late. And so it turns out you waking up a few hours after your ideal time, it wrecks all your hormones. It leads to- and Let me interrupt you for a second before yeah. you continue. When you, when you say um, um, being a, a, I guess, a diurnal, diurnal person, you know, yeah. waking up, a day, does it matter if it's sunny outside or rainy? And is, is it about the clock and the time or is it about yes. a little actual exposure to the sun? Because yeah, I, remember, a- I remember hearing someone telling me that there's natural melatonin that you get from the sun. I don't know if that's real, but at least I've heard Yeah, that. no, I, me- I meant, yeah, being on a- circadian rhythm where you're waking up the same time every day after, you know some shortly after the sun comes up so it it turns out that and I, I did an episode on this where you and i i've been testing this hypothesis for years people come into my office first session i say what time do you wake up in the morning that one question can lay out a whole treatment plan for them because what a healthy person says a psychiatrically psychologically healthy person says oh i get up most every morning 6.30 to 7 or 7 to 7.30 or 5.45 to 6.45. There's a short window. It's the same time every day. And it's either, it's right around the time the sun comes, sun comes up or shortly thereafter. What do depressed people say? Uh, well, I don't have a wake up time. Or uh, I sleep from noon to four. Or I get up anywhere between eight and two. So then, so what I tell people, like, so basically they're on six time zones. So imagine anybody who's traveled and knows what jet lag is, you know, if your wake up time varies between seven and 10 AM, that's, that's like saying some days I wake up in LA, then New York, then Chicago, then Denver. And you just, so what would that feel like if you did that? You would be irritable, foggy, um, have learning and memory and focus problems, um, probably have some either, if not just irritable, but depressed mood, you would not feel well. But that people do that all the time. And, but then that's not even counting the um, factoring in all the hormonal influences. So I, I spend a lot of time with people initially looking at this idea that if you can't get your sleep on track, it's everything else we do. It's, it's going to be extremely difficult. So let me um, ask, before we jump into the hormonal stuff, um, for some people, you know, you know, if it's just about, I like watching a, a, a certain TV show that's only on at a certain hour, you know, you know, train yourself to DVR it or do something so that you can, but some people just have trouble sleeping, maybe mm-hmm. because of that very same anxiety or, or insomnia. I mean, I know that's all interlinked. Um, it, it, sometimes it's easier said than done. And sometimes, mm-hmm. I know sometimes it's, it's control yourself and, you know, f- follow, follow more structured life uh, lifestyle um, or as you call it, the circadian rhythm. And sometimes it's, it's easier said than done that people just can't get on rhythm. Right, right. It's like, which came first, the chicken or the egg, but they're still having trouble sleeping. Yeah, but what's so interesting, and this is not always true, but it's most always true, is I ask people to commit to a wake-up time. And I say, okay, let's try to find a semi-healthy wake-up time. And I tell them, get up then no matter what, whether you're laying in bed all night, whether you were up for three hours, whether you slept well. And people will report they feel significantly better having a regular wake-up time, even if they have a terrible night versus, oh, my alarm went off at seven. I'm going to snooze it till 9 a.m. and get two more hours sleep and catch up on my sleep. No, you will feel fatigued, more depressed, more foggy, more cloudy, inevitably. Like, um, you know, I often tell my patients that I could take a healthy, happy person off the street of Fort Collins, bring them to my house and simply by keeping them up late and having them sleep late, I could make them fatigued, cloudy. And if they have a 
predisposition to depression, I could push them into that just by altering their sleep schedule. That's fascinating. That's incredible. Um, yeah, we always, we know the value of sleep, but this is clearly putting, you know, I, I think people can try it, you know? Yeah. Right, it's it. not just sleep, but it's when you sleep. Like it's completely different to sleep from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. versus 4 a.m. to noon. They're both eight hours. You sleep 4 a.m. to noon, you're, you are not going to be a healthy functioning person. That is, that is interesting. Okay, well, all right, let's, let's uh, pivot over to hormones. Um, you, I know you mentioned that on a recent podcast, and I found that fascinating. You, you mentioned for both males and females, but you, you know, I remember you, you, know, you said for women, when they go through the, you know, the three major um, you know, times in their lives, when they go through major hormonal changes, um, that throws the whole body out of whack. Tell us more about that and, and how that works with men as well. Mm -hmm. So women have, at least in the US, two to 2.5 times as much clinically severe depression and anxiety as men. Surely there are some sociological factors, some cultural factors, but the number one factor for sure is hormones. And as you just mentioned, you know, when do women fall apart psychiatrically? It's after they get their menses. In early uh, adolescence, it's postpartum, it's perimenopause and menopause. And that is because those are when they're big hormonal shifts and transitions. And there's this belief in, I think it's not just in society, I think in medicine for a lot of people that, that uh, hormone replacement is um, unnecessary, that it's potentially dangerous, that we should just let women um, move through the life cycle and that menopause is actually a good thing for a lot of women. Maybe uh, we're messing with God's master plan. Right, right. But the point on the episode that you're referring to, as I said, you know, for most of human history, there was no menopause. We were dead long before menopause. And there's only four other species on the planet that have menopause. Interestingly, they're all, they're all toothed whales. Um, and there are some interesting sort of evolutionary theories why we might have menopause. But I think the short of it is we have menopause because of public health and, and modern healthcare. Because what, what menopause represents is, is the burnout of the ovaries. It represents the uh, slow withering of the hormone, hormonal system of women. And men have the same thing. It's called andropause. But the gist of it is that men in their 40s and women in their 40s start um, losing their sex hormones. And for a lot of men and women, that has serious psychiatric um, complications, including depression and fatigue and lethargy and anxiety and panic and insomnia and even suicidal thinking and behaviors. So years ago, I, I got on board with this and I used to try to coordinate with primary care docs saying, hey, you should start hormones on this person. And there's so much kickback. And for years, I was on the phone with primary care docs and gynecologists like, oh, no, this person doesn't need a hormone replacement therapy. No, 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 no. And I said, no, psychiatrically they need it. And so finally I just started doing it myself, did some training on that. And so for most of my patients who are on hormone replacement, I do it because just such kickback in the medical community. And I think it's because I think the most doctors don't, and even a lot of psychiatrists, sadly, don't understand how crucial it is to have baseline level of sex hormones to feel and function well. And it turns out a lot of folks um, with significant psychiatric illness from 40, 45 on, unless your hormones, your baseline level of sex hormones are adequate, 
psychiatric treatment essentially doesn't work. Like antidepressants don't work. You know, if you're menopausal for a lot of women and you're trying to treat their depression and they're not on hormone replacement, it's not going to do anything. So it's, it's interesting. Let me ask you this. Um, would you suggest for people um, who are feeling, you know, you know, certainly as they're aging, well, young aging, <laughs> I'm 45, but I, I fall into that category that you just said, but, you know, certainly if you're in your forties or fifties, but if someone's in their teens or twenties or thirties, you know, would it, would you suggest getting, you know, blood work done so you can actually check your levels of, you know, testosterone, estrogen, you know, um, if as part of a whole treatment plan of, of, of dealing with a psychiatric illness, anxiety, depression, panic, whatever? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, there's, that's an interesting controversy in medicine too. There's a school of people who order labs and then treat the results. And then there's the other school, which I'm in, which is you don't order labs unless there's a patient's complaint or something that suggests you should. So for example, if I had a 48 year old man come in my office and say, you know what, I, um, I just don't want to do anything. Like I just, I've kind of lost all my drive and I don't really even want to have sex with my wife. And I just feel old. Like I just, I don't feel well. I mean, I, first thing I would do is order testosterone levels. Um, but you know, if a 32 year old guy came or even a 50 year old guy came in my office, like check my testosterone, I'd say, Oh, Hmm. Tell me about that. How's your libido? How's your drive? How's your energy? How fast are you recovering from workouts? And if all those were negative, I would probably say, I don't think we should check that. Your sex drive's strong. You're training for a marathon. Your, your muscle mass is good. You have no depressive symptoms. Cause I think we have to be careful just start ordering labs and trying to treat people by the numbers. Um, and I think the same thing with truth of women and perimenopause, you know, the hormonal testing is controversial. Um, and that it can be very hard to interpret the results. I, I'm in the camp of people that if, if women are having symptoms that are consistent with low hormones, then to treat. And if they're not, you know, if, you know, I have menopausal women who say, oh, I feel fine. They're not on HRT. They feel good. They're not having current psychiatric symptoms. Like, okay, great. Um, okay. And again, it's tempting to have an, an algorithm would be all or nothing. But I think, again, you got to paint a picture for each person. All right, let's jump back to the sleep just for one more second. What's your thoughts on uh, sleep aids, melatonin, um, sleeping pills, Ambien's? I know there's stronger stuff out there than that. Yeah, so few thoughts. Number one is anything that you take for sleep, you're going to build up tolerance to, physiological tolerance and psychological tolerance and um, dependence. So you can become, like melatonin is a good example. Like if you're taking melatonin as a, quite safe thing to take for sleep. But if you start taking it every night, you're going to become psychologically dependent on it. If you forgot it on a trip, you might have a lot of trouble sleeping just because you think, oh no, I don't have my melatonin. So I ideally, I think sleep meds, for example, are, are used short-term. That said, I have a lot of people on long-term sleep meds and they lose efficacy over time. So I think what we're always trying to do with sleep when people are on sleep meds is trying to figure out what's safest in case they need to be on it long-term. Because again, surprise, surprise, a ton of people I see have severe mood issues and mood and sleep are so tied together. So significant percentage of people I see are going to probably be on some sleep medication into the foreseeable future, because that's actually part of their whole psychiatric illness process. 
so, but you know, there's some sleep, like you mentioned Ambien, you know, Ambien is a fairly risky med, which uh, if not taken properly can cause huge problems. Um, so so you, you don't want people on it long-term, but you recognize that in certain scenarios, it's necessary because it's mm-hmm. without it, the, you can't get the, you can't write the ship. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You have somebody with, um, what's a good example? You have someone with clinically severe bipolar disorder. Like they're probably going to be on some kind of sleep medication long-term because just the nature of of their unstable moods, they're going to have unstable sleep. And the fastest way to decompensate with bipolar disorder is sleep deprivation. So. And then, and, and, and in, for example, in that scenario, it would be better to have them on a long-term sleep medication, but keep mm-hmm. them level rather than and, and the risk of long-term, not addiction, but um, 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 need is, uh, is outweighs the, 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 the greater problem of the bipolar disorder going out of control. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, it's case by case. I, um, I've allowed people, you know, who are on chronic sleep meds and we talk about that a lot. Okay. Here are, here's the pluses of this. Here's the negatives. Uh, because for some people, poor sleep is a great inconvenience for some people. Poor sleep is life-threatening. I mean, they right. could literally end up like in jail or dead. So for wow. those people, we, um, yeah, we, you know, we have to treat that pretty aggressively and have them on nightly sleep meds. Understood. Okay. So let's, let's, uh, um, move, uh, in a little bit of a different direction. Um, trauma, we, we, you know, we keep on talking about, we're both talking mostly about symptoms. Um, you know, you said something interesting in one of your podcasts that if there is a trauma and I, you know, I guess I'll build this into a couple of questions. Um, would you say that every psychiatric illness has a trauma related to it. And then you also mentioned, uh, I, I know I'm throwing a couple questions together and like this, you can run with it wherever you want. Um, you know, you said if the trauma is not addressed, the medications will never work, at least not long-term. Mm-hmm. So, so where does trauma factor into all this? You know, it, has everyone been traumatized? A lot of people don't want to believe that. <laughs> I, I don't want to believe that, but yeah. that's the truth, you know? Yeah, that's a great question. So I would start by saying that Trauma is a factor in many people who come to my office, but not everyone. So I work with plenty of people who you know, had a manic break in college or developed schizophrenia in late high school or developed panic disorder in their 30s and no apparent trauma. Uh, I mean, it's not super common, but I see people who have really severe depression who will say, I grew up in a loving, warm stable home. I'm very close to my mom and dad. I had great teachers. You know, I, I had a really beautiful childhood and now I want to die. So I think it's tempting. Again, we're always looking for, for things we can hang our hat on like Gabor Mate. He says, Oh, all addiction comes from trauma or, you know, a lot of the trauma specialists like will say all depression comes from trauma. Well, that, that's just not true. I think that the nuanced, more accurate statement is trauma is a factor in a lot of addiction. Trauma is a factor in a lot of depression, but there are people who don't have any meaningful trauma who develops serious psychiatric illness. And part of that, I think we can look at, if you look at the identical twin studies, most of the major psychiatric illnesses are 50 to 70% heritable. Meaning if you take one identical twin separated from the other one at birth, there's 50 to 70% chance, depending on the illness, 
And if one develops the illness, the other will, which suggests that psychiatric illness has a significant, very significant genetic component, but it's not 100%. Environment's part of it too. So, um, so trauma, yeah, so trauma is a big factor, but I think one of the one of the most interesting realizations I've had in the last few years is that for many people, the most significant trauma they've had is almost surely missed by most psychiatric providers and themselves. And they say what that is, is that zero to three neglect, emotional neglect, age zero to three. A ton of research shows now that is incredibly damaging to people, but that's very hard to evaluate for because that might be the kind of thing like mom's super depressed, puts the baby in the crib and just leaves the baby in the crib all day, all night, gives it a bottle. Um, but And the baby can't speak up and tell you right. hey, what happened to me. Right. And so the baby, and I've actually had a couple of people on the podcast who it turns out had this history. They only found out later in their lives that they just never understood why they couldn't connect and attach and why they just felt this deep sense of fear and, and um, that things weren't right in the world. And then they found out later, oh, mom was, for example, super depressed and just left him in the crib 24 seven and bring him a bottle. So, uh, you know, it's one thing to ask people about sexual trauma or physical trauma. I mean, mostly people can remember that. Bullying, other things like that. Bullying, right. But if you've had emotional neglect, particularly during those early years, baby toddler years, mom was absent, mom was alcoholic, mom was gone or depressed or... Um, it's very difficult to evaluate for, but that, that is one of the most profound insults a person can have and sets them up for all sorts of psychiatric illness. So I've gotten a little better, I think, about thinking about that and evaluating for that, but uh, you, that is not easy. Like you, 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 you can't ask someone an evaluation like, hey, do you think you were just left in the crib alone? Or do, do you think you were emotionally neglected by your parents when you were a little baby? Um, most people have no idea. It usually comes around to having to look at mom and dad's mental health history, how the other kids turned out. Well, that, there it's are a other, forensic kind of evaluation. Right. Well, well, that, yes, going to what we were talking about before, but there's, you know, there are other reasons that a kid might be in the crib. You know, the whole Dr. Ferber method was let mm-hmm. the kid cry it out. It sounds like based on today's understanding, that would be just like the worst thing to do. And, and many of us did that. Yeah. Although I think then I go back to this idea of good enough parenting, you know, that, and there's a lot of research shows this. Fortunately, we don't need to be A plus parents. We, we need to get like a B minus C plus. <laughs> Meaning like, it's okay if- I'm going to tell we, that to my kids. Yeah, we, it's okay. And, because, and I think that's because, you know, the baseline uh, resilience of humans is high. You know, for, for tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, life has been incredibly hard on this planet. And we, um, we are the survivors. We are the progeny of some badass people who have been through black death and wars and cholera and smallpox. Wow. And, and so I think, you know, it's, it's can be comforting to realize that actually we, we are very strong. Our children are strong. Um, so a back to the Ferber thing, I think, in general, like if, as long as kids are getting, uh, getting love and compassion much of the time, if they're crying it out in their crib, some of the time that's probably not gonna cause them untoward damage. But that said, some kids are, are orchids. You know, I think, I, I love this idea of sort of 
the dandelion orchid continuum that some my, kids are. I liked it a whole um, series of podcasts on that. And mm, it, yeah. yeah, you got some of the big names on that. Yeah, that that, that, that the HSPs. Right, right. So you can imagine an orchid kid crying it out in the crib every night. That might do real damage. The little dandelion kid might be fine with that. And that, that goes back to this idea that our kids each need, you know, it'd be great if we all came with an operating manual. Absolutely. <laughs> we have to figure it out for each Can day. you want to do that damage? I mean, I guess I'm going off script over here, but can you like, like, you know, you know, when they're young and he's, and cause we now have more information, information is so much more available than it's ever been. And I realized, okay, I've been doing X and Y. Let me just hug the heck out of them, take them out to pizza every day, really build up those connections. Can I rewire their brains still at a very young age? Yeah. I think the jury's still out on that. I think that's dependent on sort of the temperamental personality characteristics of the kid, the nature of the attachment trauma. Um, Okay, then, I, know, we, yeah, I, I don't, I, I think we don't know. I think, you know, that there's the whole, that whole body of research around the orphan East, um, Eastern European orphanages and kids just basically right. left in those cribs and given a bottle and many of them were adopted and, and some of them have seemed to do okay. And many of them have not. Um, let me, let me ask you, you know, as, as a Jew, um, Orthodox Jew who comes from generations of, uh, of struggle, you know, from the Holocaust to the Inquisition. D do you believe in the intergenerational trauma, trauma effects? Let's mm -hmm. say my parents were wonderful, but my grandparents, you know, were in, were in a Nazi death camp. Mm -hmm. I, 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 this is, this is curiosity. Do you, no, do you... no, I definitely do. In fact, I think on two levels, one is just being raised by grandparents or parents who are traumatized, how can that not affect you? But two, there's, you know, there's some really interesting research on epigenetics and how genetic expression of people when they're traumatized, it changes the way genes get expressed. And that actually can get passed down to generations, which is- So finally we create a genetic problem or yeah, see, a genetic problem is created. And, and now the next generation has that genetic predisposition to A, a or B or C. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's you know, there's at least two mechanisms that trauma could be passed down generation to generation. And one of the things that I try to point out to my um, many of my patients is uh, a lot of my patients have had terrible childhood trauma, and um, and will be in my office, you know, crying like, oh, like what have I done with my life? Or really, am I always going to suffer this trauma? And most of them, I can honestly point out and say, look at your kids you broke the trauma cycle. You, you, you did the hardest thing of all. Cause the, cause many of these folks, the trauma is just, you know, the sexual abuse generation and generation, generation. And then so many people I work with have broken that cycle. And, and I say, look, if the only thing you ever accomplished on this earth was you broke the trauma cycle in your family, like, what an amazing gift. Bravo. I love that. I love that. That that's by the way, that's a super encouraging Thing to hear. I, that's really great to hear. You know, because the, you know, we're going to get to this in a few moments. But you know, a lot, of, many, if not the most of the people who listen to this podcast are fairly young, young families just starting their families out, and and they need to hear optimistic, uplifting messages, not only you know the the, the war stories. Mm -hmm. um, okay, let's let, let me let me ask you about exercise. I know exercise is super important. You mentioned it earlier. Um, interestingly, I always saw my father exercising from as long as I can remember. Um, and uh, 
So I, I've become an exerciser, not that you could tell by looking at me, but um, <laughs> let's just say it would be a lot worse. And now as my kids are growing up, so my oldest three have joined gyms or are doing other exercise regiments in their life. And I love it. So I, they, they've, they've learned by watching because you can talk to your blue in the face. Um, let's talk about the positive effects of exercise and, and then the negative effects of, of just really not doing the exercise. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting when you look at what are physically, emotionally, psychologically healthy people in, invariably doing. They're connecting, they're loving, they're finding meaning in their lives. They're moving. They're getting up after the, you know, shortly after the sun comes up. They are, um, they're under, out, outdoors. And yet, what are we seeing in 2021 all over the world? People are staying up late. They're not out in nature. They're not moving their bodies. Um, and so I think it is, when we move our bodies, like one of my favorite books is Born to Run. I don't know if you know that book, book, but the thesis of that book is that we have been running ever since they were humans. And in fact, the way we used to um, hunt on the savannas of Africa is we would, we would do these two to four day runs where we'd chase down any animals because over a long period of time, over days, no animal on earth runs better than humans. We're the greatest runners over ultra distances. And so, but I think, uh, and I see this with my patients too. Like I have a patient who struggles with horrible depression, but when he goes hunting every fall, his depression goes away because he gets up early in the morning. He walks miles and miles. He's with his friends. He's in nature. He has to focus and all his cares and worries go away because he's just looking for the deer elk. And then he comes back home and he falls back into his life and his depression overwhelms him again. And I just, and I have a lot of examples like that, that it's like, he's getting back to his core roots of being, doing what humans do, which is like, what have we done for most of our history? We got up with the sun. We, we were out in nature. We were um, moving. We were connected. We were focused on important things that mattered. And that's just not the way most of us are living right now. Um, and then, you know, we can get into all the very specific benefits of exercise. I mean, a ton of research shows that for mild to moderate depression, exercise is as good as anything. Now, se- severe depression is a different thing because I think trying to get people to exercise when they're severely depressed is like having them jump over a building. Like, that's not going to happen. But I think it's a good marker. Hold on. So, I mean, exercise uh, elevates the mood, it improves sleep quality. It bolsters the immune system. It improves your energy. It's seemingly the only thing we know for sure that helps stave off dementia. And, uh, you know, I think it's just, you know, I especially in this, I don't mean for this to sound sexist, I don't think it is, but I think even more than women, men got to move. Because what I see in my practice every day is that men, if they don't move their bodies, they go to substances and it could be food. Like some, some of my men go to carbs, but you know, I would say my men who exercise are mostly able to stay away from substances, but the ones who don't alcohol and weed. And I okay. think again, if you look like through most of human history, what have men been doing? We've been, you know, hunting and fighting and farming and doing stuff. And like, but what do I do all day? I sit on my butt all day. You know, it's just so unnatural the way we're living. You know, we are animals, but we don't, I think when we live more like animals and we move and we're out in nature and we 
are connecting, we're tribal, like that, that's our nature. Awesome. I, I, I want to, I want to jump into the addiction stuff in just a second, but just uh, as an add on to the exercise thing, you know, um, you know, if I was a kid in today's day and age, I am hundred percent sure that I'd be diagnosed with ADHD. Um, you know, it, it just wasn't that big a deal when I was a kid, you know, they gave you a whack and said, just go do your thing or they ignored it. And somehow we, you know, we, you, you figure it out. Um, you know, you know, you know, I, I drink a lot of coffee as you're seeing over here and I, and I exercise and, and my wife's learned that about me. She's like, if you're antsy, she's like, just, just go out for a run, go to the gym, go, just go, you know, you know, blow off some steam and you come back home happy. Um, you know, is there a component of that as a, you know, uh, non-medicinal treatment of ADHD? Oh, for sure. Yeah. There's interesting. And this is actually true both with kids with ADD, ADHD and kids without ADD, ADHD is that if you have them run around, get their blood pumping, get their heart pumping, they learn better. And there's all sorts of interesting research on this and it's all kids. But kids with ADD, ADHD seem to benefit even more. So there's something about exercise that improves focus for everyone and improves ability to learn and retain information for everyone, but it's even more prominent for people with ADD, ADHD. Um, kind of reminds me, I had a, a dear friend who had bad ADHD as a kid, but it wasn't a thing when, when I was growing up, it wasn't even a diagnosis, but he was diagnosed later. And when he went to law school, he asked for permission to pace back and forth in the, in the lecture hall during the lectures. And then he got permission during the exams every, I think, 10 or 15 minutes to be able to go walk around the building quickly, a few laps, because he's super brilliant guy, but he's just so ADHD, but the moving his body would help him have get like 10, 12 minutes of being able to focus. Then he'd go and walk around and Oh, yeah, I, I totally get that. I, I honestly, I think they should do that in, in, in every, in, in my kids in grade school, I, I, I would love for them to get up every 20 minutes and just run around the school and come back. And, you know, I think everyone will do better with that. They do better. Yeah. I want to talk about the, it, what, you kind of were just leading to that a moment ago, the integration between mental health and substance abuse. Um, would it be fair to say that the vast majority, if not the majority or all people who are into some, who are abusing some form of drug, um, substance, food, addictive behavior is a result of a underlying mental health challenge? I think you could say that almost everybody self-medicating with substances, including food, is trying to self-soothe or self-modulate. And then some subset of those people actually have bona fide mental health or mental illness stuff issues. Again, it's, it's tempting to want to say all or nothing. Um, I mean, let's just use, use an ex example of alcohol. Um, plenty of people come home after work and have a couple drinks to calm down, to kind of self-medicate their stress. To, and that's not necessarily problematic. Do they have a mental health problem? Not necessarily. Is it problematic use? Probably not if they're being mindful of it. Um, other people are using alcohol as a way to try to self-treat their depression or bipolar disorder, or ADHD, or trauma, or schizophrenia. You know, I know when I meet with people for initial evaluation, if they're not abusing substances, I'm amazed. Like I'll often high five people. Like if they're not, <laughs> like give me a high. And the, and uh, because it's just if you're really suffering mentally, emotionally, psychologically substances work. I mean, they work at first, 
but you know, you want to change the way you feel, you know, cocaine or alcohol or kratom or oxycodone. I mean, you will very quickly change the way you feel. And so it's not surprising that people who are really suffering mentally, emotionally go to substances and, um, and it's because they work at first, you know, how many people, you know, if you go to AA meeting and you will definitely hear people say, you know, I didn't think I could do my life until I found alcohol. And then I knew I could do life. And that worked for a while or fill in the sub, you know, I've had patients say, I never knew happiness, you know, until I found oxycodone. I never thought I could deal or, or, or even pot. I've heard people say that until, but that was the first time I ever felt normal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Or I never thought I'd be able to talk to people until I did substance X or substance Y. So occasionally I meet psychiatrists who say, oh, I don't do dual diagnosis, meaning substance and, and mental illness. I think that's, luckily there aren't many of them. I think that is insane. <laughs> Who are those people? Like you only treating Mormons with schizophrenia. I mean, substance abuse and mental illness are completely wrapped up with each other. And, um, and what's been, and you and I emailed a little bit about this before, but what we're seeing in Colorado is actually really interesting because with the advent of initially medical marijuana and now now, recreational marijuana, there's been an arms race to come up with the most powerful strains of weed. So, you know, when I was in high school and college in the 80s, marijuana was three, four, five percent by weight THC. Now you can walk into any dispensary in Colorado, get 28, 30, 38, 40%, or you just get straight up pure THC oil. And as I've described in my podcast, it's a little bit like, you know, the difference between the weed of the eighties and now is kind of like the difference between beer and Everclear. I mean, they're both alcohol, but they're not the same thing. You know, if someone had told me 15 years ago that I would regularly see people in terrible psychosis from marijuana, I would have said, that's not possible. Never saw that in residency, never saw that in med school, never saw that when I first moved here. But with the advent, again, of really potent strains of marijuana that have high THC and low CBD. And CBD, I think, as the brakes, if, if THC is the accelerator, CBD is the brakes. You get these really potent strains of cannabis that are flipping people regularly into psychosis. So is that what is known as cannabis-induced psychosis? Yeah, yeah. Or, or is that just a fancy term that doesn't really mean anything? No, it is. It is a, yeah, it's definitely a thing. And fortunately... Most people who flip into psychosis from cannabis, as long as they quit using, it will resolve. But it's so frustrating. I think this comes back to this whole idea of medical marijuana, which I'm greatly opposed to. And I've spoken at length about how I wish they would just have recreational marijuana, because I think there's real danger, at least psychiatrically, in talking about medical marijuana, because people think, oh, this is my medicine. I'm going to treat my manic depression with weed, I'm going to treat my depression. No. I mean, you might numb yourself. You might, it might help you dial down some of this worst of the symptoms, but the long-term effects are going to make things worse. Similar to alcohol. I mean, alcohol works for depression and anxiety at first until it flips and makes things way worse. But I think for, I think it's a not a good message that we're sending kids, for example, to have this whole idea of medical marijuana again i'm speaking in the psychiatric sense because it almost makes it sound like it's healthy like the dispensaries in colorado will often have these green crosses like green cure you know, green medicine or the health way or these things and i think fine you know in my mind fine if people want to smoke weed i don't, don't have a problem with that but 
if you have bona fide psychiatric illness, you should not be using most forms of marijuana, particularly these high THC strains. Like you're putting yourself at risk of flipping into mania and psychosis and panic and um, exacerbating your underlying mental illness. So, so we see this all we see this all the time now. Let me interrupt you on that line. I, I want you to keep talking, but I want to just ask on that very thing. It, is it only dangerous? Because I, I know so many people who wake up in the morning to pot and go to bed with pot. Yeah. And and, and they're living great, successful lives and they don't seem to be flipping out. Is it only if you have an underlying mental health challenge that yeah. it'll you know bring it out or make it explode or whatnot? Yeah, we don't fully understand that, but it, the best evidence we have so far is that yeah, you need an underlying genetic um, predisposition towards drug-induced psychosis. But the problem is we don't know how to test for that right now. So- For, for an underlying issue. Yeah. So and that what may I to, or may never come out. Right. So what I, you know, I have, oh my gosh, what percentage of my patients smoke weed? I don't know, half or two thirds. Or, so you're I'm, in, I'm all- You're in Colorado, so- Yeah. So I'm <laughs> always talking to people about harm reduction. You know, like, look, if you're going to smoke weed, please like use lower THC strains, higher CBD, just be mindful of it. Sort of like my problematic drinkers. I'm just always urging them, please drink beer, not vodka. Please drink beer, not tequila, because it's just, it does matter the, the quantity of, you know, the, the potency of the, of the drug. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I've devoted a couple episodes to the whole weed issue and, you know, it's, it's really hard because I think the point you make is that, you know, the, the vast majority of people can use marijuana and not get psychotic. That's great. But what if you are one of those people who does, and you, you look around and you see, wait, all these people smoke and they're doing fine. And so I spend a lot of time with people trying to convince them that uh, their three or four or six hospitalizations or their two or three times in jail are because they smoke weed. I'm like, why? That can't be. They're kidding. And then finally, most of them, you will, after running that experiment long enough, realize, oh yeah, every time I smoke, I end up hospitalized. Or every time I smoke, I end up in jail. Yeah. All right. We live in 2021, you know, heading to 2022. You know, there is more mental health challenges that people are dealing with. In a perfect world, we can get a real thorough diagnosis. The reality is, is the, the, the Dr. Craig Hickox of the world are fewer and far between and harder to get appointments with, et cetera. Um, so people are going, you know, whether it's their primary care physician giving them, you know, mental health medications or the, what do you call, what do you call them? The, the, the checklist pharmacologists and psychiatrists. Um, but what should be the ideal, you know, route that a person's taking? In other words, there are tons of medicines out there. If you, if you want to know a lot of the categories, a lot of uh, SSRIs and MAOIs and benzos, and, 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 and I'm sure I'm missing another dozen acronyms, um, which, and all these, all, all these things help, but, you know, of course, some people need to be on medications forever, but if you're, <laughs> what we'll just call it, there's no average, but if you're the more average struggler, we'll call it, um, and you're dealing with, you know, basic depression, basic anxiety, you know, is the, is the goal for the medication to be, you know, something to get you over the hump, but really work it out in therapy, get to the root of the trauma. Um, you know, what, what is the right, you know, path that a person ought to be looking for yeah. medication as a means, et cetera. So yeah, a couple of ways to think about that. One is I like to think in metaphor and images and I'll often just say to people, you know, if we think of your mental health as a garden, you know, we might think of medications as fertilizer. The fertilizer might be really helpful, but if we just 
even if we put the perfect fertilizer in the garden of you, is that going to grow a beautiful garden? No, you have to work the garden. You have to get out there and, and make changes and put effort into it. And that is sleep. And that is, um, using substances mindfully. If you're going to use them, that is connecting, that is loving, that is finding, um, either work or purpose or engagement that, you know, I think the tendency is to think of, oh, you have depression, you take depression meds or anxiety, you take anxiety meds. But I try to encourage people, like if this is the, the jigsaw puzzle of your mental health, like meds very well, maybe a key central piece, but that is not the only piece. And if you're going to rely just on that, it's not going to go well. Uh, and then this whole, it's interesting. A lot of people come to me and say, oh, my goal is to not be on medications. And I always push back on that. And I say, really, is that your goal? Or is the goal to feel and function well? And that, and then they'll usually admit that. Uh, and, it, and that brings up the question of how long people need to be on medications. I mean, one way to answer that question is, you know, a, pr- a really important factor in any medical visit is how long you've had a symptom. So if you show up at a doctor with a injured ankle or a rash or hearing problem, one of the questions they're always going to ask is how long have you had this problem? So if you've had a bad knee for 20 years, you're probably going to have a significant knee issues into the foreseeable future versus if you twisted your knee last week. So people come in my office and say, you know, I really fell apart when I was 10. Now they're 40 years old. And I think, okay, it's been 30 years. This is probably someone who's going to be on medications indefinitely versus, you know, someone who comes in and says, yeah, the last six months things fell apart. But before that, the rest of my life, I was good. Then I think, oh, if they go on medications, this is someone who could probably do them for three, six, nine months. So time course matters. And it also really matters what people are willing to commit to. So here's a good example. I have people who have relapsing psychotic illness who use a lot of weed. And I tell them, if you would stop using weed, I think we could get you off your antipsychotic. And a number of them have said, no. I, not, not worth it. They won't make it's not it. worth it, right? No, it's interesting. Yeah, a number of, especially they're usually men, <laughs> and they say, <laughs> I'll take my antipsychotic every day so I can smoke weed. Wow. It's worth it. And then other people, I have actually other people who have decided, okay, I will make the hard choices of being really good with my sleep and staying away from substances so I can come off my antipsychotic. And most of them do well. So I think it's also, you know, what kind of lifestyle choices are people willing to make? Like how badly do they want to get off meds? Wow. You know, you know let, let me, let me kind of pick up, you know, piggyback on that a little bit. You know, do you think, again, there are certain things that people with all the best efforts in the world will never be able to accomplish on their own, but, you know, I, 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 I'm hesitant to name specific, you know, diagnoses because I'm just not an expert on the topic. But you know, let's take a bipolar disorder or or severe depression. If someone wants it enough, do you, you know, with the aid of medication for maybe a period of time or maybe forever, do you think that if 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 you truly want it enough mentally, you know, that that you're ready to do the work, the therapy, the exercise, all the the more we'll call it, some will say that the pot is natural, but the more natural um, roads that we really could work our way through many medical, uh, many um, psychological illnesses. And people just don't want to do the work. So they're just, let me just medicate it down. Yeah. I think you're not going to like this answer, right? I'll say it depends. Uh, 
So that's a very Jewish answer. Yeah. So here's, well, let's just use bipolar disorder. So I think of bipolar disorder as a huge tent and I often tell people like here, here's where you are in the bipolar tent. So the middle of the tent, the manic depressives that get fully like psychotically manic and spend tens of thousands of dollars and drive a hundred miles an hour in the freeway and hook up with prostitutes and fight cops and, you know, get really out of control. And then the very, as you go out, you get to the very edges of the bipolar spectrum, people who kind of have a seasonal, um, cyclical, depressive illness that maybe is pretty well manageable with, with sleep hygiene and behavioral stuff. So, so you could have someone with the same diagnosis, bipolar, you take two people, but the severity of illness really matters. And surprise, surprise, the trauma history really matters. So, uh, and there's, and substance use and yeah. And so that said, I know people who have what I would describe as pretty severe mental illness, who have really doubled down and changed their life and are on little to no medications. And I have a lot of other people who have done everything I've asked, everything, and they still have to be on sometimes multiple medications to, so they don't get suicidal or don't end up hospitalized. Uh, and I think this, one of the things I love about psychiatry is it's super complicated and rich and mysterious, but that's also, I think, frustrating on the patient's end because there's just so many factors that play into it. But again, another really good reason to work with someone who really knows you who sees you as a person, not as a diagnosis or, you know, as a, as a list of symptoms. That's yeah, totally makes sense. You know, it, it would be nice if, uh, if mental health challenges were like a broken arm, you know, you look at the, you look at the x-ray and, Oh, I know exactly what I need to do. This, this seems, there is a lot more guessing and a lot more um, variables that we just can't control. So it's it, like you said, fun for the curious psychiatrist, less fun for the, for yeah. the patient. Yeah. Um, all right, we're basically out of time. Leave us with a positive, uplifting message or maybe guidance. You know, a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are younger families with younger kids, you know, things to look out for, you know, things that people can do to, you know, create a better outcome or if they see things kind of starting starting to go in the wrong direction, what might they be able to do? I know I'm throwing a lot at you in this. Yeah. But, but well, leave us with well, a message of hope. Yeah. Well, I'd say a few, a few pieces of hope. Number, number one, 2021, this is the best time in the history of humans to have a mental illness. I mean, we have amazing treatments. We understand so much more that say what you will about all the things that are going badly in the world, the, there are really good treatments out there and there's amazing things on the horizon. Number one, number two is, you know, there's a big generational shift now in how we talk to kids. I can't tell you how many of my patients say when, when they were growing up, nobody talked about how they were feeling or trauma or substance use. So, you know, back in the seventies and eighties, people just didn't, they loved their kids a lot, but you know, it was more feral parenting then. people just kind of ran wild, but but uh, now I think it's very normal in so many families to just openly talk with your kids about, hey, do um, you know why dad doesn't drink? Like dad was an alcoholic. Let's talk about that. Or, hey, when I was your age, um, I was really sad and I even got suicidal. And, and so it's interesting hearing my patients talk about opening up with their kids about substance stuff and mental health stuff. It's so helpful for the kids because they feel like, really, mom? And I've seen that in my office where, you know, a high school girl will break down crying, describing what she's going through. And then the mom will start to tear up and she'll say, sweetie, 
that's exactly like that's what I went through as a teenager. And I just think oh, that is so great that we we're just so much more open and connected with our kids. You know, I think some would argue that we're over-involved, but, um, you know, and I often, my patients often worry that their kids are going to inherit some of their uh, mental illness, mental health vulnerability. And I say they might, but what they also have is they have an expert. They have someone who cares, who's going to do it differently. Cause you know, again, so many of my people describe growing up and telling their parents that they were sexually abused by a babysitter or something bad happened or that they were feeling really sad and the parents didn't know what to do and just sort of left it hanging. Just wanted my kids to know, and I, and I try to model this too with the families I work with, like, it's just talk, like put it out there. I think when kids know that it's okay to talk about whatever, like they can bring stuff up and the, and the parents can just listen and like, okay, thank you for bringing that up. This is a safe place. There's just... I, I, and I agree with you. I think the world has, I mean, in, well, I don't know your age, but we're probably pretty close to the same age. Or it's, it, there, it, There's no question that we can talk about things that, we, that we're not able to be talked about before. And I think, you know, it's, 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 I mean, if you look at Hollywood, it's almost cool. It's in vogue to have, you know, they, they call it, um, you know, so, someone's going to the hospital to, to rest. They're suffering from exhaustion. I'm like, I have suffering exhaustion every day. <laughs> but, you know, that's like code for I'm depressed, I'm anxious, I'm worried, I'm stressed. You know, um, it, it's okay to talk about these things where it really wasn't previously. And, and in that, I agree with you. We've made huge strides. And in the Jewish community and the Orthodox Jewish community, um, you know, we're moving at lightning speed. And I think that's, that's awesome. And um, all right, any parting shots? No, this was really, really fun. I'm glad we did this. Thank you. Well, thanks for agreeing to come on for this. Um, technical question. Um, people can follow you at? Yes. Yeah, so um, my personal website and for the podcast is craigheacockmd.com, C-R-A-I-G-H-E-A-C-O-C-K-M-D.com. And Back From the Abyss uh, is on Instagram and you can find it on all the podcast platforms. And um, maybe don't start with episode one, season one, strawberries. That, that's a five chili episode. Maybe <laughs> save, save that to see if, if you're someone who likes the heavy, darker stuff. Um, but, you know, there's also, there's all sorts of um, lighter episodes. There's episodes on there where I just give mini talks on different topics. So I think if you're interested in mental health, mental illness and recovery and hope, I think Back from the Abyss has something for everyone. I agree. I think that that's an excellent, excellent podcast. Um, do you do telehealth? Or are you taking on new patients? Or are you uh, filled to the gills? Very, I'm pretty full. Yeah, very, very intermittently. I sometimes have room for people uh, for people who are doing ketamine treatment for depression. But this is the busy time of the year in mental health. This is what I call tax season. Basically, Halloween to Christmas is the when people really fall apart. Interesting. Connected yeah. to the holidays? Why do you think that Connected is? to a couple of things. One is the seasonal onset or worsening of, of depressive syndromes, particularly bipolar. Also, um, a lot of people give up their healthy habits in the fall, winter. They give up working out and they drink and smoke more. That does not help. And then another thing is the holidays are really hard for a lot of people because either A, they don't get to be with their families or B, they have to be with their families. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right, let's go. So it's, yeah. And then, you know, if you're, let's say you're sober and you're trying not to drink and now it's Thanksgiving, now it's Chris. I mean, holidays are hard for people. 
Yeah. Yeah. And my, my mom's a therapist. I was bemoaning a few years ago. I said, Oh, Christmas is the worst. I said, I said, everybody suffers so much at Christmas. She said, Craig, not everybody suffers at Christmas. It's like everyone I know does, (laughs) which is sad, but kind of true in mental health. But I get what you mean. All right. Well, thank you so much for this. This was great. And I will tag you in the, you know, when, when we publish this, we'll tag you. Um, and uh, everyone go follow him. Um, go, go follow Craig on, on Instagram. He just opened his account a few days ago. Let's, let's get him a thousand followers fast. All right. Mm-hmm. Take care. Thanks a million for doing, doing this. Yeah. Thank you.